Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arbery describes the mission this way. This college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoevsky in crime and punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains, the curriculum centers in the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today Tanya Marie Lurman. She is a university professor at Stanford University where she teaches anthropology and psychology. She's the author of When God Talks Back, Understanding the American Evangelical Relationship with God, and a new book, which is our topic today, entitled How God Becomes Real, Kindling the Presence of Invisible Others. Welcome, Professor Lurman. It's a pleasure to be with you this morning. Let's jump right into the preface. You have a term in the preface, real making, and you hyphenate real making. And that suggests you're, that this really is something of a, of a more complex procedure. Uh, going in and just make it real. Uh, so what, what is what do you mean by real making? I don't begin with the assumption that God is not real or there or manifest, but I do begin with the assumption that people need to come to experience God as real, that abstractly believing that God is relevant is not the same as feeling and and having this kind of that visceral sense that God matters in your life. I did in the book is to say let's not let's not start with a question of why people believe in God because that's basically kind of an first of all it's not it's not a question I think that an academic can answer. It's not my job to answer. And the question of why people believe really is, is a way of inviting one group of people to ask why another group of people are different. I think the deep question of faith for me is why some people are able to have an intimate sense of God feeling relevant, personal, um, deeply tied to their lives. And I think that the practices that people do give them that sense. And my goal in the book is to say, as an anthropologist, what can I see about those practices and the ways in which the practices help people to feel that God is sort of viscerally present. What, what can I say about the consequence of that experience? I'll say to listeners that the book is filled with very vivid portrayals of people who undergo these kinds of experiences, and you put it in their words. It really comes from them. And you don't claim to, as you said, you don't claim to answer the question whether their belief is true or not, accurate or not. You are interested in really the phenomenological experience of, of God and, again, how God is real to them. Now, one of your first premises in the book really bears upon the hardness 
of the experience of God, the difficulty of keeping God in front of one's mind. How does this figure into the experience of, of real making? I remember somebody talking to me about his Minnesota grandmother, and I was saying things about you know the need to make God real, and he said, oh, no, no. For my grandmother in Minnesota, God just was real. And I just don't think that's true in an obvious way. What I saw was that people, even if they say that God is real for them, they don't ask God to feed the dog or put the, apply the brake in the car. They call on God in very specific ways, often very limited ways. And what I saw is that they want to have that sense of God's presence presence more available to them. So I ended up thinking about the experience of faith as a relationship between a faith frame, the way that you think about the world when God is when you feel God's vivid presence for you, and the way you act in the world in an ordinary way when you're cooking dinner and going for you know driving to the store. And often, the challenge for a person of faith is to try to bring those worlds closer together, to be aware of God when you're doing the dishes, to be aware of God when you're in the supermarket. And I saw people struggle. It's what what Christians said to me all the time. I mean, they would talk about, you know, going to church and, you know, wanting to to be Christ-like, and then they'd get into the car and yell at the kids. And they'd feel badly about that. And so I became much more aware of that that struggle. And so what I do in the book is lay out what I think I see in Christian practices and in practices of other faiths that help to close that gap, that help the, the faith frame to feel more as if it's mapping the everyday world and more available to people. So what I do is I talk about I describe absorption. I think that people who are able to get caught up in their imagination um, are more able to to have the experience of the vivid presence of God. People who do specific practices, who cultivate their ability to represent in their imagination what is not present before them. And I don't mean by this that God is imaginary, but you've got to use your imagination to represent the world that is other than the world that you see before you. I look at the the language of faith, that if people are able to build a kind of paracosm, if they're able to have a shared, almost novelistic representation of the stories of the faith, they're more able to get caught up in them and to experience their God as, uh, as more near. I look at the way people use their minds. That if people, I, I, I've done work internationally, and I can see that if people that in the, the West, where we tend to imagine our minds as bounded, they're really important to us, but they, but we think of them as immaterial, not connected to the world. Well, it turns out that those kinds of people are less likely to have sensorially vivid experiences of God. Mm-hmm. Look at the way that spiritual experience works for people who's more likely to hear God's voice as if it's spoken in the room, to see the wingtip of an angel, to you know, to feel 
the kind of the hot flush of the Holy Spirit, um, and I try to try to understand who's more likely to have that experience and how that shapes their experience. And then I look at the way that these practices change people. So I think that like, there's a story about prayer. I think that prayer changes people's experience, you know, regardless of whether there is a God who responds. I think prayer is a way of attending to inner experience that shares a lot with therapy. And I think that there's something that people of faith recognize but is not well recognized in the secular academic world, which is that when these practices work for people, God becomes a relationship. And that relationship has some similarities to a human relationship. I mean, it's different in many obvious ways. But it's not as different as one might assume. And those relationships change people. And so I try to understand how you know the sources of that change, what it is about these relationships that is affecting people. I want to get to that frame. But first, what you opened with a moment ago was a certain blind spot in which you point out in many well-known anthropologists who will look at people of faith and say, well, yeah, they, God exists to them. God is like the air they breathe. They never question it. They don't doubt it. They just they just experience it in, in sort of a, a, a primal way. Why have famous anthropologists simplified the experience of people of devout faith in this way? So I think that if one, one is not a person of faith, then it's easy to put the belief first and foremost, and it's easy to pay attention to what people say and not look at the way that they falter or the way that they, they struggle. And I grew up as a kind of in-between person. And so I, I think I come at think about faith um, from both sides, uh, the, these perspectives. I, I think that if you start with belief, you don't pay attention to how complicated these commitments are. So you don't, I mean, there's statements in anthropology texts about, well, you know, these, these God is so real for them that it would be for so real for them. For the newer, God is so real it would be inappropriate to use the word belief. But, you know, I can see that people are devout faith. Uh, they're not confused about whether God is a thing in the world the way a table is a thing in the world. I can see perfectly clearly that people of deep faith know that their prayers don't always work. And I, when I began to listen carefully, I could hear all kinds of experiences of doubt. And it's not, and the doubt doesn't necessarily have to refer to the abstract belief of whether God is real, but whether God is real for them in the here and now. And once you start to pay attention to that experience, and you give up the question of trying to understand you know, why people believe something, but you just un- try to understand the experience. You hone in on the, what you would say, say is the phenomenological experience. You just hear people differently and you see people differently. I mean, I think that the anthropologists whose books on religion have really lived have been people of faith. I mean, it's sort of, there's a great book published um, a couple of years ago by Timothy Larson called The Slain God talked about the anthropologist whose, whose, whose work is, is still read on religion. 
and and they come to these questions differently than anthropologists who you know, who really start with the, the presumption that other people hold a you know point have an idea about the world that is just wrong. The state of mind that you identify you call the faith frame. What makes the faith frame hard or complicated to sustain? That one does need to sort of become, make it something of an exercise or a discipline prayer being part of that. You talk about the paracosm, as, as you put it, this other world, which actually has often some complicated features to it. For, for example, the quote, rules of engagement that you mentioned. What are some of the vivid ways that you have witnessed people entering or sustaining the faith frame? I see people creating a world, like a paracosm means a sort of a shared imaginative world. And again, I'm not, by suggest, using the word imaginative, I'm not meaning that God is imaginary, but that the challenge of faith is that we have, there, there is the world that, that is, and there's something like the world as it should be, the world in which a divine being is manifest. And I think, at least from my perspective, what it is to be a person of faith is to hold both of those simultaneously and to try to make them as close to each other as they can be. And it's hard because it's surprisingly easy for people of faith to forget that God matters because there are so many everyday things to which people behave as if God isn't relevant, um, like driving a car, feeding the dog, writing a term paper. I've never encountered a person of faith who's asked God or a spirit to write their term paper. It's just not the way people turn to God. And, and God is invisible. What normal people relate to an invisible being? And so how do you make that invisible being more real? I saw that people, when they were able to feel God real, they would seek to live in a world that in some sense is, is like like a Tolkien fanatic living in the, the Lord of the Rings world. It's um, and, I, and I reach to fiction because it, it captures a way of being that, that illustrates something that... Um, if people immerse themselves in the details of a fictional world, oddly, that fictional world becomes something that they can move around and remake for themselves. I saw that when the um, Christians I was spending time with they were able to vividly represent the scriptures so that they were, for example, when they could see the Annunciation and ask themselves how Mary was feeling or whether there were dust motes in the air, or you know whether whether it was hot or whether it was cold, that 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 story became available to them in a way that was very different from just reading it on the page. I, mean, I came to think that this was what the house groups was what, what were doing for people, that just reading these stories and reading judges and talking about your day in the office, that that became a way of making the story intimate and alive and available as something that would make sense to you. And that when people could do that, uh, and when people would immerse themselves in the text, 
the text could inform aspects of their lives that seemed to be very different from the text. I remember a woman who was co-worker asked her to whether she could stay with her at one point and you know this woman was like oh this is the meaning of the prodigal prodigal son it's like well maybe that's not really what the text meant but it's what the text meant for her that she could take somebody who'd been who'd abandoned her home and she was going to help that woman get back into a more everyday life the process you're implying is is something that takes some some discipline, you know, some some intention. That imagination is is something that that can be practiced and developed. You you refer you have one phrase uh, farther into the book. You say the practice of inner sense cultivation, and that this is something that people individually or or in a group can work out and and develop. That this isn't just something that just spontaneously happens. Although uh, I should say that you you experience you describe an experience of your own in the book, whereby it, it was back in, uh, in in the eighties. You talk about suddenly this this apprehension in the things around you of more than just what is. I, I don't know if you want to if you want to describe that experience uh, a little bit or or not, but. And, and maybe carry that over to the idea of this is something that can be developed and cultivated and practiced. The puzzle is, how do you lift yourself out of what I'll call the world as it is, the everyday world? So I, we know, or I know, that there's some people who have a proclivity or a sort of, you know, they're more, they, they, they like to daydream, they like to be caught up in stories. I'm one of those people. And in my dissertation project, I was studying people who thought of themselves as practicing magic. And I found myself just really one day heading off to meet somebody who thought of himself as a magus and reading one of his books. And I had this, this was in England. This was back in the days when, you know, if you had a bicycle, you had these two heavy lights and with batteries and you know, I locked up my bike at the station and I put these two heavy lights in my in my bag and I'm sitting on the train and I'm really trying to read his book and trying to imagine what he's talking about, Kabbalah this and that, uh, Holy Spirit, you know, whatever. And um and all all these ideas were sort of new to me. And as I was sitting on the train and I was really trying to get into this book, I suddenly began to feel something like electricity move through me. And I felt completely alive and I felt different from the everyday and it really felt there was this current moving through me. And somewhat to my amazement, whiffs of smoke came up from the bag beside me. And it turned out that one of my battery lights was melting. So I don't know how to make sense of the battery lights. But I did get an appreciation that there are these events that happen to humans. This sense of, you know, this you could call it an adrenaline rush. You could call it a rush of the Holy Spirit. There are things that the, Holy, that the, that the human body is able to experience. Hearing something that nobody else can hear seeing something that nobody else can see, feeling 
that there is a being sitting on the park bench across from you and you know exactly where that being is sitting and you can't see him or hear him or touch him, but you know that he's there. These are human events. They may also be supernatural events, but they are capacities that humans can have. Um, So it turns out that there are some people more likely to have those events than others. It's also true that if you pray, if you practice, you're more likely to have those events. And so I actually ran an experiment in which I randomized people into prayer and non-prayer and asked and had them do whatever they were doing, you know, either lectures on the Gospels or, or sort of prayer models on the nation's spiritual exercises. And I had them do what they did for half an hour a day for a month and brought them back in and we asked them, all sorts of questions, and it turned out that the folks in the prayer condition were more likely to report two things. First of all, their the structure of their imagination became more vivid, so they could see in their inner experience. They would say that the you know their images were sharper and clearer and more powerful, and they also reported more of what we would call spiritual experiences more voices and visions and flushes and 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 presences and so i think there's a I, I think that the training really makes a difference a secular person could spin that one way and a religious person could spin it another way the way that i think about this from a religious perspective is if god is always speaking why isn't it that everybody hears why is it that some people have these experiences more than others and you know, and how could we help people? I mean, these experiences are really important because when you have them, or when a person has them, it's their evidence. That's the uncontaminated evidence that there's something that feels more than every day about the world. It gives them evidence that this invisible being is present. I get the impression from what you're saying that the someone someone who sees... Or, or just sees quotation marks, you know, someone sitting on that bench, some figure on that bench who says, I see it. I know, I know it's there. He's there. She's there. And if someone else in the room says, wait a minute, I don't see it, that the person who sees it wouldn't really have a problem with that, 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 that it wouldn't be, oh, what do you mean you can't see it? It's right there. That, that that wouldn't be the response. Is that correct? Mostly. So most of these experiences seem to come with this feel that they are understood to be not accessible to other people. That's not entirely true. And there's a whole set of questions here about the relationship between these experiences and madness because no one can ask. People can ask. Are these experiences also the sign of madness? And I'm actually now um, up to my eyeballs trying to think carefully about the relationship between spiritual experiences and psychotic experiences. And I think that there is evidence that they are different in kind, but not always. And can I ask the question of whether that matters to the real presence of God? Um, just as the biblical text invites us to wonder whether Ezekiel, for example, might have been sort of mad on a human level, 
but also to be the vehicle of God's voice. But in any event, I do think that there is a felt quality of many of these experiences that people understand that they are not uh, heard by other people or seen by other people, but they are felt by the person to be not me experiences. That they're often kind of felt on the boundary between in the person and the world. And, and people will say that, well, I know it wasn't my thought. I know it wasn't my inner voice. But I'm not quite sure I heard it with my ears. And sometimes they'll gesture close to their ear. And, and that moves for people. We know that if they practice, they are more able to have experiences that feel sort of more external to them. And people will sometimes say, particularly in in settings where they're really trying to hear God's voice, they'll say things like, a man once said to me, well, that time when I was 10 and I heard God speak to me, I, I know that was God. But these other times, it's not so clear. And so, you know, in churches where people pay a lot of attention to these experiences, I also saw that the church pays a lot of attention to group discernment. I mean, I remember a pastor saying, an evangelical pastor saying in in a church I attended, if you think God is telling you to relax and be calm, it's totally fine to treat that as if it's truly God's voice. If you think that God is telling you to quit your job and move to Los Angeles, I want you to be praying with your house group. I want you to be praying with me. I want you to be discerning whether that's really God's voice or something else that you're experiencing. You actually talk of prayer as genuinely effective, in fact, empirically proven to be to be effective. What what are the signs that prayer is effective? Well, I mean, I think the the, the signs are that are the signs of any practice that is is helpful. That somebody feels calmer, less depressed, um, more efficacious. Many prayer practices have the structure of the most effective therapy that we use: cognitive behavioral therapy, or you know, really, all therapy is sort of a blend of different styles of therapy. But if you just take God out of the picture, just the fact of attending to your inner experience and deciding to, for, to emphasize gratitude rather than everyday misery. I mean, my favorite example of this was uh, a woman I met in Chicago, and weather's not too great in Chicago in the winter. And she, she was talking to me about her prayer experience, and she said she came out of that building and you know, it was just one of one of these miserable Chicago days, and she said, "She said, thank you, God, that it's not sleeting and it's not icy the way it usually is." And it's like, and it was such a vivid example to me of how often what we do as humans is to think of the miserable things about life, and what prayer does is that it asks you to, in effect, attend to those self-critical, miserable, Eeyore-like thoughts and to replace them with more positive, thankful thoughts. That's exactly what you do in cognitive behavioral therapy. 
you know, if you have a t- tough time sleeping, your therapist will say, well, you know, what are, what are the thoughts going through your mind? Well, I think that if I don't get enough sleep, I'm going to feel terrible the next day. And, you know, the therapist says, no, you're going to feel tired, not terrible. You're not going to die. The therapy is in- inviting you to do that kind of thought substitution. And prayer is a practice where people do that. They think it's really important and they do it on a regular basis. And it seems to be a practice that does shift the way people think about their everyday experience. The book is How God Becomes Real, Kindling the Presence of Invisible Others. It's with Princeton University Press. Professor Luhrmann, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.